Chapter 17 of The Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The first thing for us to settle, said the trapper, addressing himself to the man who was clothed in the skin of the panther, before we get very far in this council is whether you be a man or whether you be an animal. For if you be a man, the converse is to be of one kind, and if you be an animal, the converse will be of another kind. And as you look about as much for one side of the case as you do for the other, it isn't easy for a man of my gifts to settle it without advice. And as you ought to know which you be better than anyone else, I'll ask you the question. And if you give it anything like a rational answer, the main points of the case will be fixed to start with. Here the trapper paused a moment and fixed his eyes steadily on the eyes of the singular being in front of him, as if he would, by the steadfastness of the gaze, concentrate his attention and re-establish the connection of mutual intelligence and sympathy which he had lost, or feigned to have lost, with his species. And then he said, speaking with direct bluntness, Be ye a man, or be ye an animal? If the trapper had expected any response, he must have suffered a keen disappointment, for not only did the singular creature fail to make any verbal answer, but even to make the least sign, he returned the gaze of the trapper with eyes that neither shrank from the steady orbs of the other nor emitted the least ray of intelligence. Not only the eyes remained utterly expressionless, but the inane look of the countenance and the stolid calmness of the features kept their possession of a face which only in its outlines and the curves of its formation seemed of human kind. The trapper waited the moment out, and then he turned toward Herbert and said with a tone of which vexation and humor were equally mingled, no, Henry, the creature isn't over-talkative, and under ordinary circumstances I should set it down to his credit, for the greatest part of the troubles of the world, leastwise as I've observed it, comes from over-talking. The redskins have the virtue of keeping their mouths shut and their eyes and their ears open, and that's according to reason, as I conceit, for the eyes see too much and the ears hear too much for the tongue to be telling it. And the less a man says of what he is seed, and what he is heard, the better folks will like him, and the less evil he will do, as a rule. I certainly doubt if the Lord will have a single point to make against this creature in the judgment on the ground of his over-talking. I feel so certain about it that I don't think it is wicked to tempt him a little. You be quick-witted, Henry, and I ask you if you've anything to offer in the way of advice. And the old trapper turned his troubled and perplexed countenance toward the young man. The trouble of it is answered the young man. He won't even make a noise. It seems to me, if you can make him begin to use his mouth, we could get some intelligent sound out of him by and by. Can't you make him make a noise? I never seed anything that I couldn't get a noise out of, replied the trapper. If it had a mouth and I felt free to fully argue the point with it. Now, teaching the creature afore us, I don't feel at all uneasy on the matter of noise. And if you want noise, noise ye shall have. How are you going to get it out of him, John Norton? I don't know, I don't know, said the trapper. There may be devices that can be more or less trusted to. The ramrod is a great help, if it be of good hickory and judiciously used. I've poked a good many secrets out of the redskins with the end of a ramrod. There's just a spot below the bottom rib, nigh around the backbone, where most of their devilments be hidden, and a few judicious titches put in a little earnestly if they be stubborn, is apt to get the secrets out of them. Try him with something else first, 
answered Herbert, laughing in spite of himself at the grave humor of the old trapper's confession. Try him a little more earnestly with your voice. Idiots are often subject to fear and can easily be frightened. The trapper, as our readers know, was a man of great stature. His head was large and his features extraordinarily mobile. Age had taken any elasticity of that fullness which youth gives the countenance, a fullness which, while it supplies the superficial beauty of physical proportion, is unable to receive into it and transmit through it the emotions of the soul. The years had, as it were, sweated the freshness from his face, and brought it to that fine condition which, when in repose, gives to the gazer the measure of the settled character, and which reflects, when the nature is stirred from within, the full intensity of the prevalent emotion. In pleasant conversation his features were charming. In humorous passages they even assisted the rising mirthfulness. In grief they were settled as solemnity itself, while in combat, when the terrible strength and power of the man were thoroughly aroused, they were dreadful to behold. Indeed, so elastic were his features and so quick were they to respond not merely to his emotions but even to his will, that they were as were indeed all the other faculties of the man, to a remarkable degree, under his control. And no sooner had Herbert suggested that he should attempt to frighten the man in front of him out of his assumed dumbness, than quick as a flash he flung his rifle to the ground and with a single leap cleared the distance between him and the man, and with a face as black as the face of wrath itself, and with a voice like thunder, and with a clutch like a vice on either shoulder as he leapt upon him, yelled, Be ye a man! The yell which poured out of the creature's mouth was as terrific as the exclamation of the trappers had been dreadful. It was the scream of animal fright, utterly without reason and without intelligence, save that which the apprehension of terror has in it. The face of the wretched being fairly shriveled and shrunk until it was distorted with his awful fear. The mouth remained open, and the yell had passed out of it. The eyes bulged in their sockets, and the sharp, pinched agony of the face showed through a skin colorless of blood. But on the countenance was not a trace of any intelligence beyond that which the deadly terror of a dumb creature can reveal. Perhaps the trapper was himself startled at the effect which his ruse had produced upon the unfortunate. Perhaps even his nerves interpreted the resultant reaction following so swift a movement and so startling an effect. But from whatever case, he started suddenly back from the terrified creature who was trembling to such an extent that he could scarcely stand and contemplated him a moment with an expression in his eyes akin to pity. But in an instant, he recovered the self-possession of his feeling and, turning to Herbert, said, The creature actually thought I was in earnest, Henry. See him shake, boy? Lord, how we can fool folks with the look of an eye and the sound of a voice. But I'm glad to have got him started, and though he hasn't actually got wordy yet, still I wouldn't wonder if we got about all he knows out of him afore we got through. But I don't concede it'll be actually burdensome if we do, because... I think you had better put your questions to him, John Norton. He has got overshaking, and if you have started his mind, you'd better keep it going. Henry, you talk like a judge. Yes, when you get anything started, you always want to keep it going. I got a feller started on the Osawagachi last fall. You see, he had a couple of my traps, not to speak of a martin. And I come again him on a carry, and he seed me coming, and I conceit that I looked a good deal like the judgment day afore I got the reason of his conduct. 
he had the start of me by a dozen jumps. It didn't take me long to get out from under the boat. My rifle was strapped in an unreasonable act, Henry. Don't you ever strap your rifle to your boat when you're trailing for skins, and ye are near the borders of the woods where the vagabonds have their housings. But I got the strap started pretty lively, and I drawed on him as he went over a knoll. It wasn't much of a chance, for the trees was thick, but the sound of the piece lightened him considerably, and the next dozen jumps that he made, as he went down the knoll out of the bullet past him, averaged nigh on the six paces. Yes, they did, boy, for I measured him myself as soon as I got over laughing. I wish he had been there. But don't you think you had better put your questions about the girl? I'm putting the questions, boy. You mustn't be in a hurry in a council, Henry. Now, you see, while I've been telling you about the running of the vagabond, I've had my eye on the creature. And if I'm any judge of looks, he's got a good deal interested himself. And if you hadn't interrupted me, boy, I shouldn't have wondered if, before the vagabond got to the foot of the knoll, he'd put in a question himself, for he didn't like the measurement of the leaps a bit better than you did. You see, Henry, continued the trapper, resuming the same tone in which he had been narrating his experience, you see, there isn't more than one or two men, nor panthers neither, for that matter, that can jump eighteen feet. Now you take this creature in front of us. I don't concede he's worth a cent at jumping, for you see, in order to make a good jump, you've got to get your legs into the right position. And the more legs you have, the more painstaking you've got to be in the matter. Yes, boy, I see him. Nature begins to work on him, and we'll have him jumping sure as judgment. Keep quiet, boy, and see the reason of the converse. Lord, said the trapper to himself, this beats the signs of the redskins by the width of a bullet at least when the shooting is close. While the trapper had been carrying on his conversation, it was evident that into the idiotic mind, whose torpid consciousness he was so cunningly trying to excite, the idea of action of the rivalry had inserted itself, for he had lowered himself to the ground, and he was now resting on his forelimbs as if he were indeed an animal. And not only this, but had gathered himself into the precise posture which the panther himself would take when about to make his longest spring. Even the tremulousness of the body which precedes all jumps of animals belonging to the cat species had taken possession of his frame, and there was every symptom that the crouching form, with whatever strength it was possessed, would soon be launched into the air. "'If he only had a tail, Henry!' said the trapper to his companion, while he kept his eyes fastened steadily on the crouching body, betraying the humor of his feelings only by the sound of his voice. Lord, boy, if he only had a tail! He may be a fool, but he has certainly studied the habits of the animal with which he consorts, until he's got there acting, motion for motion. Yes, it is a big jump, continued the trapper, as if turning to his narration. Eighteen paces! A sort of growl interrupted him. As I was saying, eighteen feet is a big jump, and the man in the skin knows it, as you see, boy, and he knows the difference between eighteen paces and eighteen feet, too, and that is certainly more learning than I give him credit for to start with. Now I'm going to pace off the distance that the vagabond jumped on the carry after he heard the sound of the piece, and I doubt if there's a man or panther that can jump it. And suiting the action to the word, the old trapper paced the six paces, and, with the stock of his rifle, drew a clear, strong line in the pine stems to denote the boundary of the distance. 
It is doubtful he would have drawn the mark so leisurely had he seen what was going on behind him, for no sooner had the line been drawn through the pine stems than the strange creature, whose appearance and action alike might justify the description of half-man and half-panther, crouched with a sudden motion still lower, and with a scream of fierce delight launched himself into the air. The trapper was standing back towards him when the scream was delivered, and though taken by surprise at the quickness of the response that his device had elicited, he spun himself round with the quickness of a top, and with a motion as quick as an animal, with a half-leap taken at a stoop, dropped to the ground. The result of this dexterous movement the reader can easily apprehend, for the man in the panther skin passed clear over the trapper in the curve of his tremendous leap, and the trapper escaped the collision which would otherwise have been inevitable. It was indeed a tremendous leap, for it carried the performer not only to the line the trapper had drawn, but several feet beyond it. And when the strange creature rose to his feet, through the stolid idiocy of his countenance there plainly gleamed the look of triumph, and with it something of a human expression, as if, in excelling a deed of man, he had in some subtle measure, faintly at least, re-established his lost connection with his kind. Henry, said the trapper as he stepped aside and eyed the distance that the strange being had covered, Henry, the creature's legs be of the best, or he never could have did it, for the jump be a big un, nigh on to twenty-two feet as I judge, and there ain't many legs that can cover that distance on level ground unless they hear something in earnest behind em. I feel a good deal encouraged, Henry, said the trapper to his companion after he had contemplated the creature in front of him, for we've certainly got one idea into em, and I conceit that by a little careful watching and judicious managing we'll get another. The point for us to get at is, has he seed the girl? Yes, that's the first thing. Keep your eye on him now. "'for the eye and not the ear is what we must depend on in certain this trial.' "'I was telling you,' continued the trapper, "'dropping into the precise tone of narration "'which he had used in the previous description "'of the jumping of the thief on the carry. "'I was telling you, you remember, Henry, "'of the vagabond I met on the carry "'with a couple of my traps on his back, "'not to speak of the pelt of a martin that belonged to me, "'and the running he did arter he seed I was coming, "'and I had lightened his heels with the sound of my peace.' The fact is, boy, my mind isn't quite clear on this matter of running, for it don't lie in the build, and the length of the legs don't settle it. For I've seen the matches on the edge of the settlements. A short-legged man beat a long-legged one, and even among the redskins it isn't the handsomest limbed runners that'll fetch the tidings the quickest. Boy, where does the running power of a man lie? I think, answered Herbert, that the windpipe and the lungs rather than the muscles often decide the race. I shouldn't wonder if you was right, Henry. Yes, it certainly takes a big nostril to live out a race, or else a mouth that answers the same purpose. Now, panthers can't run, they can jump. You have seen that they can jump, but a dozen jumps settles them, and the reason is they haven't any nose. They was made for springing and not for racing. And if the bushes be scant, and she had a dozen rods in the start, a nimble-footed girl could outrun one of them. It is difficult to say whether Herbert more admired the adroitness with which the old trapper had led his remarks up to the culmination in the pronouncing of the word girl, which was done with the slightest of all emphasis, just enough to distinguish it from the words which preceded and followed it, or wondered at the result. The strange creature, 
ever since he had made his jump, had manifested a certain agitation. It seemed as if the sight of human faces and the sound of human voices and their continued presence so nigh him had created an influence which was penetrating through the terror of his mind and insinuating subtle and magnetic currents into his sluggish consciousness, for his face, while not animated, at least revealed the possibility of becoming so. The night was still over it, but the watcher felt that the prophecy of a dawn was amid the gloom, and a dawn, too, that might come at any moment, and with a burst of splendor when it came. As the trapper had continued his remarks, a strange being had kept his eyes fastened on his lips, as if by eye as well as by ear he sought to establish connection between his understanding and the method of expression to which he had been so long unfamiliar. The attempt was not unsuccessful, the result proved, that his mind had formed connection with human speech sufficiently strong to receive impressions from spoken words was on the instant made manifest. For when the trapper had pronounced the word girl, even as the sound of the word fell on his ear, a flush came to his face, a cry leapt from his mouth, and the furred right arm swept into the air and for a moment fixed itself in a gesture of direction. The joy of Herbert was so great, for he caught the significance both of the creature's exclamation and its accompanying gesture, that a cry of delight escaped him. The trapper showed less emotion, but felt equal delight. He's cedar, boy. The Lord be praised. He's cedar. And that's certain as judgment. And twenty Moravian missioners, with all their preachments, couldn't make the direction plainer than he has by that sweep of his arm. Let's go. We've got enough out of him to tell us the direction. Let's go to the boat and be off. Steady, boy. The scent is cold yet. And you'll run over it or lose it altogether if you make the pace hot. We know that he has seed the girl. We don't know when, and we don't know whether he seed her living or seed her dead. How can he tell us? How can he tell us? exclaimed the trapper's companion. The fool can't understand our sympathies or know the value of time. Leash the pups, boy, and hold them a while in hand, I tell you, or you'll certainly spoil the hunt in your eagerness. The fool is doing well, considering his gifts, and is fetching us forward faster than your wit and your learning could do it. His eyes kindling, and I begin to conceit that there was reason in the Lord's acting when he caused you to miss him in that balsam thicket. Yes, his eyes kindling, and the winder never looked bright yet, unless there was fire in the cabin. The eye, boy, whether it be in the head of a man or in the animal, was put there for another purpose than for the man inside to see out of. It was put there for them who be outside to see into. Now do ye stand, boy, and watch the reason of my acting. Ye asked me to give you some sign talking the other day, and wondered how it could be did. I couldn't give it to you then, for a man can't talk by words nor by signs neither unless he's something to say, and I had nothing to say, but now I've got something to say, and I'll show you how the redskins and the hunters of the western plains talk by signs when they be ignorant of words. With this the old trapper set his rifle against the pine tree and placing himself some dozen feet in front of the man who was dressed in the skin of the panther proceeded to address him in the picturesque and impressive language of pantomime, with which his life and travels among the Indians and the frontiersmen, for his journeyings extended to the base of the Rocky Mountains, had made him a master. There is no fashion of human communication, as we have said, so picturesque and impressive as that of pantomime, or of physical acting. 
It is a language of personality in its highest state of expressiveness. Little are personality seen in the bare movements of the lips, when from the moving but concealed tongue, mechanically, without soul, the words come forth. Whatever diamond-like significance the word may in itself contain, as the lip pronounces it, the diamond's gleam is not in the utterance. The mind of the listener must take the cold stone and through the friction of his own imagination strike the blaze into it. Hence eloquence is not in the man, but in the multitude that hear the man. And not only talent but genius and genius of the highest type has more than once confessed to its own inability when brought face to face with unresponsive hearers. The imagination must speak to imagination, reason must address itself to reason. Thought must have audience of thought, and fire must be mingled with kindred flame. For ever through the dull, cold process of verbal speech, the poetry and strength of the nature can be manifest. The trapper, as we have said, placed himself in front of the strange being, who had, from some freak of insanity, left the companionship of his kind, and by imitation of covering and habits alike had become associated with animals and who, it was evident in his wandering through the woods, had met the girl after whom they were searching. But when, or where, or whether living or dead, neither the trapper nor his companion knew. And this knowledge, upon which the method and direction of their future search would depend, the trapper proposed to elicit, not by language addressed to the ear, but by that more vivid and impressive method of communicating thought which appealed clearly, strongly, and at times even startlingly, to the understanding through the eye. The eyes of the two men were now fastened upon each other. For a moment the trapper did not move. It was as if the gathering magnetism of his nature was being concentrated in his gaze alone, that through it should go forth a current that should start an answering current in the other. Their eyes met, their eyes mingled. The orbs of the trapper glowed steady and strong, the orbs of the others shifted and stirred uneasily in their sockets for an instant, flashed and kindled intermittently, and then settled into steadiness of vision and met the interrogative gaze with one receptively submissive. What is this strange, subtle force in the stronger nature which brings the weaker into alliance with it, at times even into submission to it? Henry, who had watched with keenest interest the maneuverings of the trapper to capture the attention of the other and fix upon it himself, marveled as he perceived how quickly one could conquer another. Never had he seen the trapper look as he now looked. Never had he seen the greatness that was in him appear so evident. He stood erect, lifted to its fullest height, his head thrown slightly back, his nostrils under the exciting passages of the outgoing force dilating, his eyes glowing with benevolent, indeed, but all-controlling emotion. The force that was needed was not the force required from the strong to conquer the weak, but the force that was required from the living to quicken the dead. For the mind upon which the trapper was called to exercise his power was not only dead to human contact, but had for years been buried beneath another organism which had formed its rude and barbarous stratum above it, to resurrect the man from underneath the animal and move his understanding in the long unused forces of human thought to fasten it upon dates and names, conditions and appearances, and make the comprehension adequate to the emergency. This was the miracle which the trapper attempted, and the first movement to the accomplishment of the miracle was to fix the wandering mind, and into it insert one idea. And so the trapper, 
having by his gaze conquered the gaze of the other, lifted his right hand in front of him, and pointing suggestively directly at the other, said in a voice so clear, strong, and condensed, that it seemed to go through the one to whom it was spoken. Girl! End of chapter 17